Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. In this episode, show host Dan Ferlito sits down with Peter Asenyi from Territory Studio to discuss his work on Blade Runner 2049. To start off, you want to introduce yourself, your kind of your background and experience briefly, and what your role is at Territory Studio? Yeah, uh, my name is Peter Asenyi, and I work as a visual effects supervisor at Territory Studio. Um, I've been with Territory for seven years now. How did you get into this type of work? I studied television um, and writing and, and visual design and that kind of stuff. And I started to work in advertising back in the, back in the late 90s. Um, I, before that, I was in a band. So I was really involved in quite a lot of um, sort of like music uh, type stuff and then I moved into advertising and I um, um, became an art director I started to work in that business started to uh, get involved in writing for commercials and shorts and that kind of stuff and then um, when the big change started to happen in advertising um, by that I mean the um, whole online thing was starting to happen um, I moved on to doing motion graphics and visual effects. I started to, I created a small company, uh, freelanced quite a lot. I, I traveled around in Europe. You lived in Hungary when you were younger? Yes. Okay, until yeah. what age? Uh, I moved to London like 10 years ago. So into adulthood. That, that's really cool. You'll, uh, yeah. yeah. That'll be fun to talk about kind of your experience going back there through the project, but. <laughs> When I came to London, I got a phone call from, from a guy called David Sheldon Hicks, and it turns out to be that he was one of the founders of Territory Studio, and uh, we started to chat. I started to get involved with what Territory was doing, and then um, I'm, I'm here since then. Uh, very cool. I, I see some parallels in kind of a, a little bit of Ridley Scott's background in terms of commercials and artistry. So uh, I'm sure that really helps when you're involved in project to have that sort of uh, varied background. You know what, if, if anything, that's quite interesting because one of the things that I, it's, it's very interesting because artists who come on board uh, working on films, they sometimes find it pretty difficult that in, there's, a, there's a huge chain and you always have to sort of like make sure that someone further up the chain is happy with what you are doing. So if you will, there's a client at the end of the chain. And uh, what we do here is, is besides being artists, we try to make the clients happy. And in that sense, it really doesn't matter if it's a commercial client or a, or a director. You learn how to sort of like work in these type of situations and how to make the best out of that. And I think that's that's really helpful. Plus, you know, commercial world is really really fast. Really, uh, you don't really have too much money to to spend on these kind of things. Uh, it needs to be really efficient, and I think that's that's incredibly important when working in films to be efficient, to be cost effective, to be on point as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah, certainly if you want to be successful, at least. <laughs> I mean, that's that's where you run into troubles, running out of time and running out of money. Yeah, yeah. Just to go back to hmm? earlier stuff and Ridley Scott, um, since I noticed that you guys worked on The Martian and Prometheus, yeah. and, and those are Ridley yeah. Scott projects, I wanted to ask a little bit about your experience with those. Um, I did not work on Prometheus. That was done before I came uh, onto Territory. Uh, but I did work on The Martian. 
which was which was an incredible project. And uh, you know, working with Ridley is always really good because he's very precise in terms of what he wants, what he needs. He is a very visual director. He has his very famous Ridley Grams, which are incredibly helpful and useful. Um, yeah, The Martian was a fun project. I, I read the book before we even were considered for the film, and, and I really wanted to do something like that, because that's that's a kind of uh, science fiction film that I, I quite tend to enjoy, that has some sort of realistic aspects to it, but it also has a cool story. Yeah, that, that, that was really fun. We talked to quite a lot of um, real space people there, because the screens that we needed to need to look fairly realistic, not just in terms of the look, but in terms of what, what's displayed on them. So um, the production, and Ridley was, was really keen on not to have something that's that's too science fiction in terms of the contents, so no made-up orbital maneuvers and that kind of stuff. That, that was all grounded in reality. So we consulted with, with uh, space agency people quite a lot. Sure, yeah, and I, I think uh, from watching The Martian, which is an excellent movie, not just from the story, you know, I, what I always tell people about The Martian is that it's a if you pull all the space stuff out of it, it's still <laughs> a great movie. It's well acted, it's well cast, it's, uh, the you know, everything about it makes for a great movie. It just happens to be set on Mars, but yeah. you could even argue it's not really science fiction. It's really, like you said, it's projecting things that are most likely going to happen. We'll probably go to Mars and colonize it. I know NASA's planning on it on, on the American side, at least. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a take on the Robinson Crusoe type story. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean... The line Matt Damon mentions being a pirate at some point, which I, <laughs> which was a f great line and funny, but that, that certainly makes sense for the plot. Um, that's really cool, yeah. And, and what an experience to be able to participate in a Ridley Scott project. And you know, I know he did some executive producing. Uh, obviously, was slated to originally direct uh, Twenty Forty Nine, but um, yeah. Uh, before we get into that, real quick, I just wanted to ask. Um, you know, some people that are most of the people involved in the production were familiar with the first movie, but I wanted to ask you, and we asked this of all our guests, kind of what was your first experience with we. For short, we call it 2019. That way it's easy to not get confused. But the original Blade Runner from 1982, kind of what was your first experience with that and how did that sit with you as you did this project? Yeah, um, I saw it first when I was about 17, and one of my teachers, uh, which was probably, I think that was the mid-90s, early 90s, something along those lines. Uh, one of my teachers, we had sort of like some, um, some class where we were talking about films, and he uh, made us watch it, and, and, it was, and we were talking about the whole concept and how you know what sort of ideas are in there and what does it mean that there's a there's an android that's more human than a human and that kind of stuff so it, that was my first uh introduction to that kind of world and then after that um i, I watched the director's cut I, I watched various versions uh so yeah i was well aware of um the film and before that even even earlier than first watched the film i read the novel 
I read the uh, the why do uh, do androids dream of electric sheep? I, I read that in a magazine, which was really really funny. And that was that must be the early eighties, I, I as far as I can remember, slightly after the film, maybe in, maybe around the time the film first came out. Yeah, so that that's my experience with the original one. I really loved it. it it's a it's a beautiful film. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, we're we're all big fans. That's what started it all. Uh, interesting. Yeah, and I remember reading a little bit about your experience in school uh, in that article, which I'll post in our show notes so the listeners can catch up and see that. Um, let me see. Yeah, before we kind of dive into the work you did in the movie, and just as a background, I am not a technical person. I don't work with software and stuff. So, you know, this will be an interview from a layman's perspective when we do get into the details of stuff. Um but yeah, because, uh, so, uh, Maxon, which makes cinema 4d and, and other software, uh, I'm friends with their PR rep. And so she's the one that introduced me to Helena and got this interview going in the first place. So as a thanks to her, I promised that, you know, we would kind of plug cinema 4d a little bit and ask a few questions about how that worked. Um, so yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about how the software works and what kind of role it played in the, you know, modeling, painting, animating, and rendering that you did for 2049? Yeah, so um, Cinema 4D is a, is a 3D tool. Essentially, it's a, a, a 3D uh, generalist software. It does everything that a uh, um, 3D software needs to do. It, you can do animations with it. You can you can do modeling. You can do a bit of sculpting. You can do textures, all sorts of stuff. Um, and uh, we at Territory use a mixture of tools, but Cinema 4D is one of the one of the main ones that we tend to use on on the projects, which comes from the nature. Uh, of the company, because Cinema 4D tends to be a tool that um, motion graphics artists and and uh, freelancers use quite a lot, and and that's where we started from. Uh, so the user base is quite close to um, the 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 artist base that we work with. So it's incredibly important for us to to be uh, to to have Cinema 4D on board, and uh, it has some features that are extremely um, helpful and useful for us and makes our life so much easier in some respects. Um, and obviously as you know, our company gets bigger and we do um, quite a lot of things in the past few years, as we get closer to, to visual effects, uh, it tends to sort of like get mixed uh, into a, a, a Maya environment. But Cinema 4D is, is, is still the main tool in the studio and, and we are really, really lucky that uh, we have the support of the of the people at Maxon, and um, yeah, it's a, it's a great tool. I love it. I still use it on a daily basis. Cool. Yeah, I would say maybe just keep it in mind as I ask you uh, more technical questions in case something comes up that you want to mention in terms of how it worked and what you used okay. as tools. But um, yeah, kind of. This is kind of a big question, um, but I wanted to ask a little bit about the initial uh, creative brief that I'm assuming you got. Um, uh, well, first of all, yeah, tell us a little bit more about, obviously there was a bid put out and you guys were trying to get this, uh, this contract and then you got it. So how, what, what did you think when you first heard that you were getting the 2049 job? I think 
we started to started to we got a phone call somewhere in uh, 2016, the early part of 2016, probably around March or April or something around there, maybe even a little bit earlier, um, uh, where Paul Inglis, who was uh, supervising our director at Blade Runner um, 2049, we worked with him on Prometheus and. Uh, he got into touch with us uh, talking about a project that he can't really talk about but he would like us to to get involved and he wasn't able to say anything he wasn't able to say what project that was uh, what sort of what type of work that involves uh, but we said yeah Paul I mean like you know if you think we would we, we, we would be a good fit we would be really happy to take part in this and then they got a very, very basic list of stuff that potentially need to be done. So um, the initial bid that we did was was based on nothing, essentially. <laughs> very mysterious. We did not know anything. We, we they mentioned some some uh, vehicle screens. They mentioned some computer screens. They mentioned some other stuff. But it was very, very sort of like untraceable and, and, and nothing really tangible was in that bit. But um, we started the conversation and then we got uh, a little bit more detail. Then we did the bid and uh, then essentially it got greenlit. So we started this thing with having no idea about what was going on. So that's, that, I mean, like, you know, that's, that could be a very terrifying place, or that could be a super interesting place. And we, t <laughs> we, we took that as a, oh, that's super interesting. Whatever happens next, we, we are on board and we're super excited. Right. Well, that, obviously your gut instincts were good. That was a good call. <laughs> um, so is would you say, so I, I'm not familiar with how a creative brief works. So mm -hmm. would you say that that was part of the creative brief or is that something that came later? Not necessarily. That was that was more like, you know, this is the scope of the work. But in terms of the creative brief, uh, I think we went through a few phases. When Paul was able to share some information with us, he was talking about, uh, I think the major part of, what he was talking about was how this world uh, in this movie operates and, and, and what happened between the end of the first film and the, and the beginning of the, the new one. So we got some idea about what they don't want to do. That was uh, almost as important as, as knowing what they want to do. But it was really, really important that Paul shared uh, with us that they don't want to do any digital stuff. This world doesn't really have digital data and everything that that's used in this world stems from the fact of the big blackout raised everything. Right. Let me, uh, yeah, excuse me just for a second, not to interrupt your yeah. train of thought, but I wanted to read this quote that kind of sets that up in the PR release and then ask you more and, and then let you continue. But sure. uh, the press release mentions how uh, Denis did not want the technology in 2049 to directly reference the original film, but rather to reinvent computer technology and give it a distinct <laughs> organic, abstract, optical and physical qualities that felt like the same world 30 years later, but could aptly represent the scale and impact of the blackout that happened in 2022 that destroyed digital capability and data files and basically made digital technology unusable, which we know are all key elements in the film. So uh, continue with what you were saying, but yeah, I'm curious because when you say uh, we couldn't use any digital, like obviously you're using digital tools and, and all kinds of uh, computers and stuff all the time. 
but it mm -hmm. sounds like the end product needs to not look like it came from that. So that's a little bit confusing to the layman. So maybe talk a little bit more and continue your train of thought, please, but talk a little bit yeah. more about that. Um, so essentially, um, when we started to get a little bit more information, and, and that was probably between uh, Paul's initial brief and, and the first meeting uh, with Denis, we understood that this world still has computers, but the computers don't work in a, in a way that we use them because we rely on um, sort of like zeros and ones and liquid crystals and, and all sorts of um, digital representations of data. If you think about the, the laptop of your screen that's, that's made of um, LED or LCD crystals and, and the way it's represented, the way it re represents data or pictures, it's, it's pixelated, it's pixels, right? So right. It, that kind of thing doesn't exist because they were they were useless because because of the the big uh, blackout. So the task was to come up with ideas that this world still needs computers. How do those computers work? And this was the the super interesting part of it because there was some real thoughts going into that, and that worked really well with the with the visual representation of these kind of things, because obviously we are talking about a film, we are talking about design, we are talking about uh, a pretend world. As much as it's tangible, it's still a made-up world. So we had a bit of liberty to to explore these kind of ideas. But I'll give you an example, and that probably explains it um, a little bit. So when we are talking about computer screens, um, we came up with the idea of... You know, you see those beautiful bioluminescent uh, sort of like creatures, uh, maybe bacteria and that kind of stuff that sometimes washes up on seashores and, and that has that beautiful blue color or, or sort of like. Sure. Uh, and we, we started to explore the idea of what, it, what, what if someone discovers that different uh, electric currents, different types of electric currents, or different strengths of electric currents, if those are fed into a Petri dish uh, full of these bacteria, maybe that glows in blue, or maybe that glows in red or, or green, or you can come up with different color variations. And that makes the whole thing very organic. What if you create a screen with these kind of things? So we invented these non-existing technologies, which were absolutely not plausible, but you know that that was like a that seemed like a, a, an alternative take on how technology works in 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 the world that we live now. I don't know. I mean, I could, maybe that doesn't make any sense. Interesting. No, I mean, again, you're trying to explain something that's difficult to explain, which I think comes across in again the press releases and other articles where I'm like, what do they mean exactly when they're saying that digital screens don't work? Because you, yeah, another example. I mean, like you know, you have a computer that's completely erased. There's no electricity uh, for a while. All the digital data is gone. All the software is gone. You still have. A computer case you still have a, 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 a sort of like a monitor which works in a in a way that you might be able to use parts of it there's probably a light source in there that's still usable in case the electricity comes back how do you generate content on it uh, how do you generate colors on it uh, let's let's try to try to play with these ideas and come up with these these wild alternative takes on uh, a, a fusion of biological and electrical and electronical 
kind of stuff. Very analog. I mean, I, one of the big uh, references, and I don't want to rush ahead because I'm pretty, pretty sure we're going to talk about that. One of the big references were, were all these microfiche uh, machines that still exist in libraries these days. So, you know, that that's... When I was a kid, I saw something like that. That was incredible. That looked like super sophisticated. And what if you combine that with some sort of uh, sophisticated data storage thing? So you just use the optical parts of it or use the the way the, the mechanical part of that process works. It, it was basically a, a, a massive sort of like just uh, idea generation and brainstorm that we started this whole project with. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's really beautiful. I, I understand on a bigger scale the scope of it, even though I don't necessarily understand the details. But I think that's the beauty of filmmaking, right, is you didn't have to come up with code to make that happen. You didn't have to, you know, draw out blueprints for these machines. You just had to think, okay, here's what we have and here's what we can't directly use. Yeah. What is the end result going to look like? And, I, you know, I got to compliment you guys. The end result is beautiful and um really works well with the story of the film. So what you were trying to do, you definitely accomplished, even though it's a very abstract kind of concept that it's really interesting. Yeah, I think one, one, one other important uh, element was in this whole thing that you have, you have quite a lot of optical stuff that this whole thing goes back to, quite a lot of uh, clunky machinery, which was also really important because that sort of like channels the, channels the world or creates a world where you know, there, there are massive pieces of technology lying around, completely unusable, but let's find another purpose for those. Let's let's house a different uh, content in it and that, that kind of stuff. And it also gave us a great tool to explore the, the social differences in this world, which, again, I'm pretty sure we're going to talk about how the uh, how the corporations sort of like designs and, and technology and screens uh, look very, very different compared to everything else. Yeah, and, and we will talk about that. And, and another thing that leads right into what we're talking about right now is uh, some, you know, magically, again, probably through not the way these both these movies have worked is that there are many, many incredible artists, mm -hmm. uh, a few at a genius level, most would argue that were involved in both these projects, yet no single person is responsible for the final outcome, just like in any movie. But when you see some of this magic of mixing these ideas and these abstract things into actual props. It's, it's like no one, I don't even know that anybody on the production knows exactly how they got to the end result. You know, it's one of those things where, I mean, I think, you know, you, you read articles about Ridley watching the first cuts of his first film and being blown away by the end product. Because again, it's, it's not one person putting it all together. The cinematography is important and, and all of that. I mean, it's, you were in it at the very beginning stages, which is very cool in terms of what the look, what it was going to look like in the end. Yeah, I think I think that's the magic of filmmaking. I think that that's the that's the genius of of Denny and Dennis and 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 Paul and everyone who was involved in this film, um, because they let the people do what they do the best, and I think that's a really really good thing. Uh, and, and I think that creates an, an atmosphere and an environment where collaboration and ideas are really just helping one another. That's cliche, but that's really how collaborative filmmaking should work. And and, and, and I was blown away by the support and, and, and all the sort of like 
it, it was really like, hey guys, here's an idea. What do you think about? It? Oh, that's great. That you know, what do you think about this? Oh, that's brilliant. Let's build that into this. But what if that causes that? Oh, that's even better. And so it, it was very collaborative, and that's how it should be. And that's that's that was a, a superb example of people really wanting to do extra to 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 make sure that this film uh, looks like it looks on the screen. Totally. And I'm glad to hear you say that because that matches up with, um, for example, we interviewed Mark Mangini, the sound director on 2049. And that's exactly how he described Denis' process. He says, you know, Denis hires exceptional artists, surrounds himself with this artistry, and then he very rarely gets granular in telling you exactly how to adapt things Absolutely. You know, aside from briefings. And so he allows those artists to really blossom and do their work, which I think is just, it's so simple. I'm sure Denis being a modest man, if he was asked specifically about it, he would say, well, I'm just letting people do what they do best, you know, <laughs> and it, but it's, it's such a simple approach, yet it works so well. And, you know, you can see it when, when you think productions did not do that. Um, I yeah. think it shows, you know, the opposite shows. Yeah. So. Facilitated it so well. And, and obviously he was working very close with, uh, Dennis Gassner, the production designer, and Paul, right. and and it's just you know it was incredibly important to get precise feedback, and you know we had these meetings with Denny in the beginning when when we flew to Budapest, and um, literally the first one we arrived somewhat earlier, and then we were sitting in a huge room at a huge table and we were discussing something amongst ourselves when then Denny came out and, and it was like, Hey guys, I'm, I'm Denny Villeneuve. I'm directing this film. And it's like, Oh Jesus Christ. It's <laughs> an awkward situation because we were not in the, or let, let us present the ideas sort of like mindset, but he just sat down and we started to discuss things, started to talk with the, we threw ideas at him and he responded like, yes, I, I really like this. Uh, or I really don't like this. I, I think that's a great idea. Explore that further or don't even try to do anything like this. It's incredibly useful because I think on films, one of uh, indecision is a, is, a, is a huge issue. And when you have someone with the artistic vision and the, the decisiveness, that's incredibly, uh, that, you know, means great results at the end. Of course, yeah. It sounds like you can see that coming when you're in the middle of the project participating, especially after talking to Denis. But of course, everyone sees it as the final product, or those of us who pay attention to who's making these movies, you know. But you know, myself and Patrick and Jamie, the other, uh, the two other hosts uh, and founder of of this podcast, uh, we talk about that all the time about uh, Denis' scope and his vision and 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 how it translates onto the screen and yeah it just I, i'm i'm excited just hearing about it it must have been so amazing to be a part of that production as opposed to something where you're more controlled or more oppressed or more you know restricted um which i'm sure can happen obviously again we're talking about multi-million dollar budgets etc yeah. but i mean like you know one thing to keep in mind all the time which which is what we have to remind ourselves quite a lot of times is is this is as much as we are involved in this and and we put our heart and soul into this ultimately the film uh is, is is someone else's responsibility so the best that we can do is to do our work as well as we can uh but you know if if someone says that this is not what they want to see do something else that's that's 
a, a big part of this process. So, I mean, like when, when I'm doing my own films, I'm I'm in that seat. I'm I'm driving the whole process. But you know, on someone else's movie, when we work as a company or, or artists, that's that's part of the deal. And I, I would say it happens more often than not that someone is not as supportive or open as Danny was but that's 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 the name of the game you can't complain about that right right but it's nice when it balances out in in, in this way <laughs> um I wanted to go back just for a second speaking of details but I, I think one of the really magical things that Denis and the rest of the team were able to pull off all of you guys was making connections to the original movie without making them direct and without <laughs> kind of copying anything, but just taking inspiration and, and making it feel like a mm -hmm. world that came from, you know, like the, of course the Pan Am uh, advertisement is a classic example of a company that's defunct now, but because it was in the first movie, we're not in our future in 2049. We're in the future from the first movie in 2049. Yeah. And I think one of those things was, you know, these clunky CRT monitors and all these 80s technology that you see in the first movie, which was, you know, spruced up and made to look futuristic and they add knobs and tubes and stuff, just like the buildings. And you guys were able to do something that had a similar effect, but for different reason. And that was, of course, the blackout and what we just spoke of. So mm -hmm. I think that was a nice detail of, of um, having that. Uh, connection to the first movie without copying anything and it's even because of a different reason but the result was similar and kind of gives you that nostalgic feeling yeah yeah I, I think I think we were we were really keen on not to redo anything and I think that was that was a very important part of the brief in the beginning to to stay away from computer screens don't even try to think about any aesthetics that are sort of like uh, similar to the first film. However, because of the genre, because of this belongs to the same family, it was inevitable that some things resembled some things that happened in the first film. Um, you know, the scanning stuff, the, the snake scale in the first one, that pretty much it, it was a precursor to the, uh, the bone scanning stuff, if you will. Right. You can feel that. Yeah, but it was it was never explicit. It wasn't like, hey guys, you know, there's this great sequence in the first one. Let's do something that looks like that, but make it a little bit different. It was never like that. But because the whole genre, this this detective noir or film noir, operates uh, in a fashion that you know follows a a pattern where the main hero sort of like just, just finds clues. It was inevitable that something will happen which resembles certain things in the first one. Um, but yeah, we no one was meant to be copying anything or directly referencing anything. Right. I mean, that's the basis of kind of leadership and inspiration, right? Is to get get yes. get people to create the product that you want without having to give them direct, explicit instructions. Uh, again, it shows. I mean. Harrison Ford complained in the first movie about the script and initially saying, look, I'm a detective that does no detecting. And so they started to film more scenes like that. And you know, yeah. it makes sense being in a noir that it kind of follows a little bit of those lines. I think, um, yeah. And, and, you know, some, some stuff that's not seen in the film, uh, which we, which we experimented with, uh, is incredible. And, and, you know, I don't know, you must have seen, there was a, there was a YouTube video that I saw, which was uh, Adam Savage from the Mythbusters 
uh, talking to the prop guys on set. I don't know if you've seen it. That was like on you talking about on the twenty forty nine set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I have not seen that one, but I will look it up. I he sort of like uh, had access to to all the props, and he was talking to how the prop guys were making it. And there was a prop which didn't make it into the final film, and we created some stuff for it, which was incredibly interesting. That was the um, there was some uh, device that. Uh, held photographs and there was a scene when Kay explores the photographs from from Sapper's farm do you remember that in the in the film sure. the paper photographs and he just looks at them uh, at BB's bar at the marketplace and in the original brief uh, there was a device that he inserts these things into and he's able to 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 extract three-dimensional data from these photographs and he's able to explore it from different angles and he was exploring the tree uh, checking out the numbers and all the all, all these surroundings and that kind of stuff and it was really great to see that the actual prop existed so they prepared the prop um, and we prepared the, the software or the or the graphics that's going to run on it but it was not in the final film but this this these kind of things happen, but it, it was such a such a such an interesting piece of technology, and there are quite a few of these that did not make into the final film. But yeah, I mean, like that that was part of the exploratory process, and it was brilliant just to come up with ideas like that. Oh, what if you have a paper photograph and you just put it into a device, and you're able to extract three-dimensional data from it? Right, because the end—that's amazing. Yeah, the end product looks like a, a video photograph essentially it's a photograph yeah. that, that moves which also harkens back to the original movie i don't know if you remember the scene specifically where uh deckard's looking at rachel's photo that she left in his apartment of her and yeah. her mother yeah and, and they specifically add a bit of video to that it's really subtle and lasts like a quarter yeah. of a second maybe but yeah, yeah. That, again <laughs> um it's it's so fun to see those uh juxtapositions yeah um, yeah, speaking of which, so I think I would encourage people, and again, we'll put all this in the show notes, but I would encourage people to go to Territory's website because they have these beautiful um, pages on the work that you did and, and the visuals um, and, and a couple of videos that you guys put together um, showing the work. But um, speaking of which, back to those pictures, was that something that you guys worked on? Uh, which uh, the photographs of the tree and everything that he's looking at when when the scene where Mariette walks in and he's looking at the tree and, and you know the, and you can tell the photographs are moving is that something on video that you guys did? What's that? It's a tree. Oh, never seen a tree before. It's pretty. It's dead. Now, who keeps a dead tree? I think that was done in post, and, and I think I think um, some of the stuff uh, needs to happen in post because sometimes uh, a great idea that everyone buys into on set or or in pre-production or in uh, during the, the shooting doesn't really work out in the edit. Um, so that's you know. That, there must have been the reason why this device was never used and, and they found another way of telling the story. So, yeah, we were not, we were not involved with the photograph. 
Oh, okay. And we were, but you know, that's not what you see on the screen. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it, I think we've talked about it in script writing and, and filmmaking and um, you know, I've done just a little bit of editing myself, but we've talked about it as a concept when you're writing a story, the sort of a marble block idea where you write the story as a big marble block and then you start to chip away at it so that yeah. the end product came from something that was real so that the world building, even after you edit and cut stuff out, is all there. And so it holds up to scrutiny well and it makes sense even when it's something that didn't make it on screen. I think what yeah. you brought up is, is a great example of that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, like I said, uh, you guys have great examples of, you know, I'll list a few here, but obviously I think that whoever makes your website chose them because they were some of the most beautiful work. But, you know, we have the screens in K's spinner in the interior, um, various LAPD screens, the medical scanner used for Rachel's bones, mm -hmm. Joshi's computers, the Denabase. Um, uh, we'll talk about those. I just wanted to ask real quick if you had any personal favorites that maybe you know didn't make the cut for your website necessarily but that, that you really liked or that you enjoy working on or or maybe that you found most challenging just something maybe if, if it's not uh, on there and if there's not that's fine we can talk about what's on the website because it's gorgeous yeah um I, I personally um I, I did work on three major things one was the bone scanning stuff uh which is is pretty much how we delivered it uh with one small sort of like cosmetic change in post but that's basically what ended up on on set and you know a very important thing that quite a lot of people don't recognize is is uh and probably ryan gosling brought it up in in in, in an interview that uh, denny built a world which existed as much as it could on set. So these guys were not doing what, you know, sometimes other films do, which is like have massive green screens and blue screens, and you just sort of like imagine a world around you. These sets were really built up. So the bone scanning scene, uh, the screens that they are looking at were there, and what they see on them was there on set. And we had uh, guys who worked with us who were able to trigger certain states of these animations at certain uh, narrative points. So it was almost like a, sort of like a, a bouncing off or, or a sort of like an interplay of the actor's performance and what you see on those screens. Because the way we prepared these kind of things, uh, we had an intro animation of, of this whole machine and then we had a, a, a little loop which held over a certain point of the of the pelvis. And then when the actors got to a certain part of the script, they triggered another state which moved the scanning to another um, phase. And then, you know, we did that a couple of times. And it was like this interaction between the acting and the and the actual screen that was really interesting. And that was that was that's really rare that it happens sometimes. So it's not, it wasn't as easy as they were looking at some green screens and 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 blank screens and and that kind of stuff. These kind of things happened in in real life and real time and on set. And why is it so important? First is because it casts light on onto the scene, casts light onto the actors. They are able to look at something. They are able to immerse themselves into what's on the screen and they can respond to that. And, and I think that's crucial to get 
those kind of performances. So that was that was superbly interesting. So that's the bone skinning scene. Um, I really love that. I did uh, quite a lot of quirky screens for the neighbor's apartment uh, sequence, um, which was when they were scanning the the little horse. He took it to to his friend who had Dr. This, Badger. Yeah, Dr. Badger. Right. Um, I don't need a real horse. I don't need a real horse. I just, just want to find out where it's from. Okay. Uh, we did, I think, close to 16 uh, screens there, and 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 the brief was to do something that's absolutely. Uh, bizarre and, and and strange and does things that you can't really imagine what it does i did the scanning stuff when they were actually scanning the horse uh and the other thing that made it into the final film but in a different form uh was the pilot fish view of the tree we did quite a lot of um exploratory work on how the pilot fish uh discovers the, the little uh box where Rachel's bones are kept underneath the tree and how it sort of like scans the earth and what sort of um, technology it uses to do that. We did quite a lot of stuff, which ended up in a different form in the film, but that was, that was delivered on set. So they used it. That's really cool. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> uh, I can go through them really briefly. So I rewatched 2049 last night and kept mm -hmm. track of all the screens I can see that, you know, aren't on your website. And so they weren't obviously guaranteed to be you guys, but really quick, if you want to just tell me yes or no on, on okay. things that, you know, that territory worked on. Um, we talked about Rachel's bones, uh, love's office. Uh, there are some computer screens on her desk. We did all of those. Okay. Uh, the right. Oh, the Wallace Core desk monitor. Yes. Uh, when, okay. Uh, this is unlikely, but I figured I would ask. What about some of the holograms in the market scene or the food court scene, like the Soviet ballet holograms? Yeah. No, we did not do that. Those, those okay. were post, and um, you know, as much as we would have loved uh, getting involved with that part of the show, because. Um, they did that part of the work in uh, North America. People are not as easily involved. You know, time differences and, and Denny's uh, availability. Yeah, that was a bit... Sure, okay. So I'm assuming same thing for... It's actually Ana de Armas for people that are paying attention, but the sort of Japanese girl that's dancing around in a hologram, I'm assuming same thing there. Um, no, we, we, no we, we did not do that. Right, okay. A small detail, when Love is getting her nails done, I'm assuming that was also done in post, but I just figured I would ask. The nails were not done by us. We did quite a lot of concepting for the glasses, though, which... Uh, oh, the glasses, cool. Yeah, I think I think it ended up uh, as a as a plate, shot plate in the film. You know, they, they have some sort of footage uh, which we can see on those glasses, but we were doing quite a lot of... Uh, exploratory graphic work on how she sees the scene and how she fires those missiles and what sort of tracking the whole device does and that kind of stuff.
very cool. I'll have to take a closer look at that uh, on my next viewing. Um, how about the Vegas uh, pilot fish cam? It's sort of a widescreen. Uh, it almost looks like a real camera flying through that environment, but obviously there's a lot of CGI involved. Did you guys have any involvement in that? I think I think that was that was frame store if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Uh, they did an incredible job, and all the other houses did did a, did a beautiful job. And I, you know what? If if you ask anyone who worked on this film, I'm pretty sure they're going to give you the same answer. It was just such a such a great project to be a part of that everyone sort of like did 110. percent Yeah. No, that's that's what I keep hearing uh, from everyone. So it's 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 been confirmed. Uh, and then the last one I noticed, uh, Wallace's sort of the interrogation or the, the big water room, you know, with, with that huge shot in the third act, um, when the, I guess holographic, but the screens pop up when he's replaying, um, audio from Rachel and Deckard's first meeting in, in the movie or, or some of their conversation, he sort of has a, um, almost like a video screen that's projected holographically in the air. I don't know if you remember that specifically. It's a very small part. I think that was post as well. Okay, cool. Well, I figured I would just go through that real quick since I had you. Um, let's go back real quick. Um, I did have some specific questions, especially since we talked about this recently in an episode. But I wanted to ask, since you worked on it, especially on the bone sequence, which again, beautiful work. And, and I can really appreciate how the making it less passive and having that interaction where um, Brian Gosling actually activated some of those animations must have helped so much for the acting and everything. But um, yeah, let me go through just a couple of points. So mm -hmm. there's a fracture in the ilium, right? In the actual, the, that big um, hip bone. Yeah. Did, did, did you get any specifics on where to put that fracture or anything like that? Um, it was a really interesting sort of like thing because when we started to work on it, the, the actual prop wasn't ready. So we did this without uh, knowing how the actual prop is going to look like. But towards the end of the, towards the end of the, the process, but I think probably after we delivered those screens, uh, we got some, well, it was before that, we got some uh, photographical reference for the whole skeleton. So we tweaked the textures a little bit but what we did um, is we we sent lots of uh, files to Paul just to confirm that this is where they want to have all those scars and fractures and that kind of stuff. Uh, so it was a process where, where we sort of like all agreed on this is where it needs to be. What makes it what makes it plausible if, if someone does an operation, where would that happen and, and what sort of scars it would leave and that kind of stuff. So. Um, so yeah, that, that's a, that's a, that's a, that was a conscious decision to put those things there where they were actually, uh, on the Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause um, I am talking about two slightly separate things. One is the fracture in the ilium. Uh -huh. The other one is that's mentioned in the movie is the notching on the iliac crest, which yeah. is referencing someone doing an emergency C-section. Yeah. Cause I've had questions about the anatomy and wondering if that was plausible that they would be that kind of that far out on the hip you know and so you know we've we've talked to a couple of doctors because it's like one of the few points of contention where i'm like i don't know if that's where those would be but i was just curious um whether that came directly from you guys or whether you got specific direction on it but it sounds like there was a lot of back and forth yeah i actually remember consulting uh on that question with the production and i and i, I think i probably talked to one of my friends who's a doctor that you know where would that happen, and is it is it plausible and that kind of stuff? And I think at the end of the, um, when someone needs to take a decision like this, it's it's going to be 
Danny or Paul or, or, or someone who was responsible for that kind of stuff. So uh, we only proceed if you get a, a, a definite, all right, this is, this is what I would like to see here. This is where it should be. Um, because that's, that's, an, that's an important thing. And, and you know, if, if I put it somewhere else, then probably it's not going to fit into that kind of stuff. I don't know how pl plausible that whole thing is. But um, definitely, there was some consultation going on on that. Okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll leave it there. That's that's a good enough answer for me. Um, well, at the beginning of the bone scene, uh, the bones are still inside the Footlocker, but they're you can see video screens. I guess an X-ray really uh, showing that you guys were responsible for that as well when they're no, actually. I think that was done by someone else. Oh, okay, interesting. And then lastly, Rachel's serial number. Mm -hmm. Jamie and I were talking about this yesterday. Uh, I don't believe that Rachel's serial number is mentioned specifically at any point in the first movie since she's not even explicitly a replicant at the beginning of the movie, as opposed to Leon and Batty and all the other replicants have files and therefore they have serial numbers. Yeah. So I'm wondering, obviously, I'm assuming you guys didn't come up with the number yourself. That must have come from above. But... Um, do you remember any conversation about that? And and also, I'd like to ask on a second part on its placement because if you watch the screen, it's interesting that it's sort of it's in a crevice or almost like inside a fracture, which is kind of inter an interesting choice because you think that that would have been lasered into the bones or uh, you know somehow printed in or something. So it's interesting to see it in like a crevice. I'm curious to hear a little bit more if you remember any of that. Uh, it's an interesting. Uh, the, the, this whole section is interesting because. The, uh, when we delivered that uh, animation, we did it on a bone because that was specifically uh, not on a bone. Sorry, uh, it was it was a strand of it wasn't even DNA. It was it, down to the cellular level, so it, it was one of those uh, internal structures of a bone, if you will. Um, that's where we placed it, and that's where we had it through the whole process. And obviously when they were editing the film, Denny must have said that, you know, we need to make it absolutely clear that the audience understands that there's a serial number. So that part of the whole sequence was changed in post. So uh, I think I would say, I don't know the whole story, but I would say the, the placement of it is, is probably where it needs to be for the audience to, to register it. In terms of the number, I tried to search for the, the conversation. One of my colleagues, Ryan, he came up, he found the, the format for the serial number. Right. This is the Nexus 6 format. The Nexus which, 6 format, yeah. Right, which she's arguably a Nexus 7, but nonetheless, they're very. it's a different format from the new replicants, the 8s and 9s that are in 2049. So, yeah, I recognize that. I think, and, and then the rest of the email talks about we um, got informed that she was a Nexus 7. So we suggested a number, which was N7FAA52318. And I think that's where we started the conversation from. We sent it over to Paul, and he must have sort of like cleared it with Denny and, and, and everyone else involved. So I don't know whether that was the final serial or not, but that's where we started. No, it, it was, because I, I recognize it just from memory, because, of course, just for the listening audience to remind everyone, N for Nexus, F for female, the AA are mental and physical attributes. I can't remember um, 
which order they go in, whether it's mental, physical, or physical, mental. But those are A through C, I think. Um, so obviously showing that Rachel was both very intelligent and very physically strong as well. Mm-hmm. And then the five-digit serial number is her incept date in 2018. Yeah. So yeah. that's fascinating. So you think that it's possible that one of you guys actually came up with that a number following the format, but you may have created her birth date? I mean, not you personally, but somebody on the team? Um, I don't want to sort of like overpromise, but... That, yeah, we that, can speculate. That's fine. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm really reading these uh, emails now, and, and it seems like we suggested a number. Um, yeah, I mean, like, you never know. Maybe that's maybe one of those little things that no one really wants to own but yeah i mean like that would be cool if we we were suggesting that yeah no no that's interesting i mean again nerds care about the source of little points of data like that so i I have to ask being a nerd myself (laughs) um cool well I, i really appreciate the level of granular detail you're going into uh oh my last mention i wanted to say again in those comparisons with the 2019 to 2049 um of course the serial number looks so much or is so reminiscent of the snake scale electron microscope sequence where you can see um, the serial number, you know, on the quote unquote snake scale in the first movie. So that was a really great uh, throwback the way that was, that was accomplished. Um, Let's move on to the, uh, the Denebase screens, the DNA sequencing shot, which was so beautifully done. If you could talk a little bit more about that. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that was one of the one of those things where uh, when we got the brief from Paul, uh, they were talking about uh, one, one of the big parts of the aesthetic was uh, this microfiche idea, the electron microscope, uh, a, a file of facts, that kind of stuff, how we can combine that kind of thing. We, we got some uh, images, reference images of the actual machine. So that was very important, uh, that, that was part of, the interesting part of the thing was how it's going to look like, and there was this very physical aspect to it that it starts out as, as cards, and um, we had variations of that kind of thing. We had one big card in the beginning, which was um, sort of like rolling in from the side in a circular fashion, and then we had one big one which was flipping up and down, and then we had this idea of having three of them at the same time being making sure that uh, we can see more um, base pairs on the screen. And then, you know, there was lots of uh, different takes on this idea. But I think the, the, the original idea was that to create a card for each person that has a, a, a section of their DNA and then, or uh, yeah, and, and then, you know, we recognize that he has superhuman capabilities because he's able to flip them through much faster than a human would uh, be able to do. And he's able to compare those base pairs. Now, what you see in the final film, again, uh, that was augmented and um, that was uh, re sort of like visited in post. But the original idea is if you, if you go, if you look at what's in the film and what's on our website, you see that the idea is essentially the same. But again, for editing purposes, it was tweaked a bit. Um, sure. But that was a that was a really really tricky task because I think another company was meant to be doing that originally, and 
everyone sort of like struggled with it for for a while how to talk about DNA because the initial idea was you know those um, when they do all, all sorts of DNA related stuff in films and in TV shows you see those columns that are sort of like lining up against one another and, and they are compared and that's not what DNA is about as we figured out so they were very specifically talking about base pairs and the hundreds and, and, and thousands and, and millions of base pairs that K uh, sort of like goes through and how we can show something that's that's interesting, that's not too small for the audience not to pick it up, that has unique elements, that has a, a, a physical and mechanical sort of like capability. Because don't forget, this is this is just a backup. And this is, uh, there must have been a computer database uh, at one point, but it, it got erased. So the, the me mechanical backup is the only thing that they can go back to. So, um, yeah, we, we explored it quite a lot. And um, I don't know whether that's on the territory website, but on my, my personal website, you see examples of, of the first tests. Um, which is quite interesting if you compare it to the final ones, because you see the whole idea was, was almost there from the beginning, and that shows how good a brief Paul and, and Donny was giving to us. And it was just a question of iterating through um, all these new requests and making sure that it tells the story properly. Very cool. Well, I'll ask you later about that website, and we'll put it in the show sure. notes for people. Um, cool. Yeah. One last specific question about the, the Denobase microfiche sequence. So, uh, obviously you did a lot of exploration of what DNA sequencing looks like. So the order of all the sets of GTCA, mm -hmm. uh, how did that come up? Did you put that through a randomizer or like, are those all plausible sequences of DNA or where did the actual order of letters come from? You know what, actually someone got into touch, a uh, couple of months after the film was released that he's, a, he's an expert in these kind of things and, and, and those uh, correlations and, and those sort of like sequence orders are not really, not really plausible because we should have done this and would have done that and that kind of stuff. And, 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 and I, just, I just told him that, yeah, he's, he must be right. I mean, like, I, I don't know anything about that kind of stuff. And, and as I said, those were generated randomly um, we had a very basic understanding of how DNA sequencing works. And, and I think, again, this needs to go through quite a few people. And I think as long as it tells the story, as, as long as it's sort of like uh, somewhat at least looks like someone looking at DNA data, then it's all fine. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, you're trying to bridge the gap between reality, which can be not that beautiful or interesting and an actual movie that people enjoy watching. So any attempt towards realism is appreciated. I, I just had to ask the question specifically. It certainly takes nothing away from the movie, whether those sequences are real or not. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure if someone looks at it much closer, then you can find out some, some uh, non-existing combinations of, of those uh, right. things. It, it, it's funny. I'll give a I'll give a tiny anecdote. I was just speaking with a nurse friend of mine, and we were talking about the movie RoboCop, 
Mm. And uh, he was, you know, and that movie is can be a little ridiculous at times in terms of what they're doing. But, um, you know, his his very serious comment was, you know, the code scene where he dies in the first part of the movie is the most realistic code scene that I've ever seen in any movie. <laughs> so it's funny to see when a movie that doesn't even necessarily to have that part down so realistically has it down pat, you know, whereas you see other things that are easy to slip up on. But I think we can all agree that Denise movies and uh, all of you guys that they hired and the whole production, it's just such an incredible job that, um, you know, you really have to nitpick to find any tiny errors and none of it takes away from the overall scope of the project. Yeah, I think, I think you know, the, these are these are films. And, and as much as, I'm, I'm, you know, on The Martian, we, we try to, as I mentioned, we try to go as realistic as it's possible. But, you know, at the end of the day, if, if it's just a very sort of like, the real world is not as interesting because it would be a, a documentary, right? Um, right, right. So these are just, just made up things. Yeah, sure. Well, again, I would like to personally congratulate you and everyone else on your team that worked on it because the end product just is beautiful and really allows you to uh, get absorbed in the story and, and not be distracted the same way the actors were. But I think it really works well from an audience perspective. So, um yeah, congratulations on all your work. You guys really did a phenomenal job. Thank you. We definitely uh, tell that to the, to the guys who were playing. Yeah, of course. Um, great. Well, um, I'll keep you on for a few minutes afterwards, but I'd like to officially you know, thank you again for your time. And uh, we're sorry that Andrew couldn't come on, but we'd like to thank him as well. And uh, the rest of the team of my team uh, would like to thank you. And, you know, they couldn't be here, but um, they'll be riveted and excited to listen to this conversation so uh thank you again for all your time and and um yeah I, ho I hope we can talk to you again soon absolutely thank you very much for for the opportunity to to talk about Blade Runner and talk to you about you know what's interesting and and, and uh, I really appreciate the chance to to share a bit of uh, background info on these kind of things find out more about our podcast, go to www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is also available for listening or download through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, and Podbean.